So we want to produce climate-friendly beef, but also maintain the value of the, the product that we produce. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and I'm happy to welcome our guest today, Dr. Zach Smith from South Dakota State University. So I'll go ahead and read his bio here, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Zach Smith has served as an assistant professor in the Department of Animal Science and as the faculty supervisor of the Ruminant Nutrition Center of the South Dakota State Agriculture Experiment Station in Brookings, South Dakota, since July of 2018. Smith earned a Bachelor of Science degree in animal production from Texas Tech University. He received a Master of Science degree under the direction of the esteemed Dr. Robbie Pritchard in feedlot nutrition and management from SDSU and a Doctor of Philosophy degree under direction of Dr. Brad Johnson in feedlot cattle nutrition and muscle biology from Texas Tech. Zach has a 70-30 split of research and teaching. His research program is focused on nutrition and management interventions that enhance growing and finishing beef cattle production. The Smith Lab has extensive experience in determining the feeding value of novel cereal grains and corn milling, both wet and dry, biorefinery products fed to feedlot cattle. So welcome to the show, Zach. Hey, thanks for having me, uh, Dr. Hanson. I'm really excited to get to be here today. Man, I remember the first time that I, I don't know, maybe the exact first time, but I remember like meeting you down at PNC and you were like that person that always called me Dr. Hanson. And I'm like, stop, stop, call yeah, me stuff. I, I don't like being called Dr. Smith either. Most, uh, I guess in formal situations, it's okay, but it typically makes me uncomfortable. So I go by Zach at, at home and at work. So <laughs> that's okay by me. I always tell the grad students, you know, like the undergrads in class, I like them to call me Dr. Hansen, at least to get started. The, the graduate students, I was like, it's a lot faster to scream Steph when there's a steer chasing down behind me than it is to say Dr. Hansen, right? Dr. Hansen, <laughs> <laughs> Right? It's life or death here, people. <laughs> Sure. All right. Well, we always like to start these conversations off with just hearing a little bit about your story, because I think that's one of the coolest things to hear about how we all took somewhat very different, sometimes kind of similar paths to end up where we are here in academia. So tell us your story, Zach. My story is uh, probably more uh, not conventional. So I'm the fifth of six kids. Um, I've got siblings that are much older. Uh, they're born in the mid seventies, kind of, uh, 76 and 77. And then three and four were born in 82 and 84. And then my little brother and I, we were actually, I call it the highlight of my parents' twilight. They had, uh, two kids 14 months apart when they were both over the age of 40. And so, I mean, I remember going to my mom with her before saying this, but I went to kindergarten and they asked why my grandma was dropping me off. 
off because she had gray hair. And so we, uh, and so I grew up, I grew up in a big family and that's a, a, probably a lot. And my whole family, we're all, we all got different careers, but we're all the same obnoxious. We like, we all get together. You can't get, you got to be quick on your words. You've probably noticed that just talking to me. And so I'm five. My little brother, Barney Mac is six. And uh, my dad, my mom was a stay-at-home mom my whole life. She taught uh, school for many years before the five and six came after her 40th birthday. Uh, but my dad spent his whole career working uh, in food sales. So he worked for Cisco Foods. And we moved kind of all around the country. So when I was five, we lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, when I was five, we moved to Central Florida, which I mean, was pretty cool. Uh, I grew up. I don't know how many people know this, but I, we, we lived just a few miles away from the entrance to Disney World. So much of my youth was, I mean, I can look out our back door and see the magic, the Epcot fireworks and hear the magical kingdom train. And so I grew up in Orlando uh, until about the age of, right before I turned 15, we moved to West Texas. My mom and dad said if they didn't get me out of Orlando, I was going to probably end up in prison. Uh, and not just because I was kind of wild. And, uh, so I grew up in Orlando, really, for a, really my formidable years. I mean, the, the things I, I remember most were in, in Orlando, and, and that's a great place to grow up uh, as a young kid. I'm not sure I would ever end up, I wasn't going to end up in an animal science class at Florida, University of Florida, though. Uh, not just, just because, I mean, it's crazy now and kind of fun to look back on it, but I was literally in a cow-calf mecca, and I didn't even know it. It was, it was in my backyard just a few miles from one of the larger cattle ranchers in the country, the Deseret ranches. They were like 10 miles away from where I grew up. I didn't know anything about it. I knew about citrus production and I knew about fishing, and wakeboarding and going to the skate park. So uh, one cool thing about growing up in, in a vacation hotspot is that the off season was really the time we went to the theme park. So my mom being older, she, uh, she always thought it was a wise investment, and this is a pretty, pretty privileged thing. We, we got annual passes to the theme parks, and so we didn't have babysitters in the summer. My mom would drop us off at Universal Studios at 8 a.m. and come get us at 5, and she didn't have to watch us all day. Or she'd take us to the skate park and spend, a, it was like $30 a month for an all-day skate pass every day. And she'd be like, all right, boys, I'll be back at 5, and uh, that's where we were able to all of our energy. So it wasn't until we moved to West Texas uh, when I was maybe 12 or 13. My, my dad had met my mom uh, in Dallas and my mom was from West Texas and her whole family roots go back to the town I, we actually moved to when I started high school, Sweetwater, Texas, which is in essence right in between Midland, closer to Midland, but in between Midland and Abilene, uh, west of Fort Worth three hours, three and a half hours. And we moved there when I was 14, right before my 15th birthday. And I can remember it was like culture shock. I was going to move away from all my friends that I had known. And I went to a little country school. Actually, my wife and I met there. She was, a, I was a freshman. She was a seventh grader. And we, we moved out to West Texas. And it, it was pretty cool. So the, it totally changed the trajectory of my life. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I, I always, I wanted to be a pilot, actually. That's one of my hobbies now. I wanted to be an airline pilot or 
work in the Air Force. Or I was obsessed with aviation, and I still am to this day. But uh, I moved out to West Texas, and I can remember the f- I wanted to be in an ag class. Well, couldn't take ag your freshman year because you were taking too many other electives like your art appreciation and theater class that you needed to graduate. But I did hear about chickens, and so I got chickens my first year. I was a chicken shower. Uh, we'd moved from uh, six kids. We had a pretty pretty large house in Orlando. Well, because we all lived there. And when we moved to West Texas, we moved into a two-bedroom warehouse uh, to get closer to my grandparents and uh, closer to the ranch that Dad had bought. It was kind of a hobby ranch. We had some cows and uh, we did a lot of hunting out there. So we lived in this two-bedroom warehouse and we got some chickens. And my little brother Barney and I were actually, uh, I can remember the day before the show, we were washing the chickens in the bathtub and they were just dropping loads everywhere. My mom was like, what are y'all doing? And I was like, well, I've read online, you have to clean your chickens before the stock show. And we didn't have very good luck with the chickens. And then the next year, I wanted a pig. So I got like too many pigs. I got like four or five of them, showed pigs. And my first run with ruminants was actually my junior year. And so I, I was a horrible livestock husbandry back then. I, did, I had people helping me, but I wasn't very good at it. But I always wanted to be a livestock judge because when I saw at the county show, I was like, I want to be like that guy. So my whole goal at that point was I started doing the going to the livestock judging contests, and then I got in, finished that up uh, in high school. It was never really too successful, but I liked going and doing it. And then went to college, and uh, I got a letter when I signed up for college. Tech did a pretty good job of looking at incoming freshmen that had judged in their contest. And they sent me a letter saying I could join the wool judging team. So I did that. They did wool meets and livestock. Um, but about, I guess, about two semesters into college, I had a pretty good mentor. His name was Sam Jackson. And Dr. Jackson uh, was kind of what we call a, it was AS1401. He taught 1401 anatomy, livestock evaluation. And him and I were really, we got really close. And I said, man, I thought he had a pretty cushy gig. Uh, he, he was always there before nine o'clock, but he, he looked like he was having fun. And so I was like, I think I told my dad, I said, I think I could be a college professor one day. And all I thought call it, that would mean at that time was being like a judging coach. And so I was going to do that. Then I was on the meets team and I convinced myself I wanted to be a meets judging coach. Well, that was I was going to do that until the day I started grad school. Then uh, I livestock judged and, and how we, we weren't very successful livestock judging. A lot of my best friends still from that uh, event are pretty close to me. But the meats judging was something I really enjoyed. And so I knew I liked judging and I knew I, I wanted to be, uh, I guess, a college professor and do teaching. By this point, I didn't really know what research was. I helped with research, but uh, looking back now, I wouldn't have hired myself as an undergrad. But Mike Ballou called undergrads, Dr. Ballou called undergrads, little bees of error. I was a little bee of error because all I could think about was getting home and uh, walk, you know, hanging out with my buddies and going and doing things we weren't supposed to do. So I did that. Uh, at the end of my livestock judging career, I, I graduated a semester early because I'd done some dual credit classes in high school. So I went and signed up for graduate school, and I didn't have an assistantship. I was just paying to go to grad school. So I was called a grad temp. And I went into my first class with Brad Johnson, and he was like, Zach, 
what are you doing here? You didn't do good in my feeds and feeding class. I was like, I'm going to grad school. And he looked at me straight in the face and he said, good luck. And uh, so then at that point in my life, I was just taking grad classes and I got me a study carol in the library and I read Boyd and Boyd back to back. I was ready for the first exam. And then Johnson's like, oh man, who's that? You surprised me here. And uh, so I'm still going to grad school, don't have an assistantship. And then I, I heard the judging coach at SDSU was my livestock judging coach at Tech. He's like, hey, Zach, we're, we're trying to hire a bachelor's level lab coordinator and you could help with judging teams. And I thought, well, that would be cool, but I'm going to grad school at Tech. Or I'm paying my way. I don't have an assistantship, but I'm in grad school, man. And I didn't really even know what assistantships were at the time. I just thought it paid to go to grad school. So I came and visited South Dakota State Little Eye Weekend. That's a pretty big on-campus event. It was also pub crawl. I was like, how do I get signed up for this? And also, I, I didn't know who Robbie Pritchard was. But I told Johnson I was going to go meet Dr. Pritchard. And he's like, well, you know, if you go do a master's with Dr. Pritchard, then you finish up. Let's talk about a PhD program. And so it was all perfect. Pritchard told me I followed the lightning path. I took the path of least resistance. And so then I ended up at SDSU, got to work with Dr. Pritchard. Uh, good thing during grad school is I was single, so I wasn't tied to any one place. I was a little nervous about moving far away, but my circle grew, and I was able to mature and get away from my distractions in Lubbock. And then I went back down there and did my Ph.D., and about the time I finished up, Pritchard was, he was done at the university, and they opened up a position. I applied, and I got it, and that was five years ago. Probably was turning in my application five years ago this week. And then the coolest thing ever was, is during this time, Shine and I got back to, together. And we never really officially dated. We'd always just kind of been pretty close. And uh, I told her I was going to apply at South Dakota State. And we're not engaged or even talking about getting married yet. And I was like, you should come. Like It would be a fun adventure. And I got her to come visit in May of 2018, and it was nice out. So she was like, oh, this is cooler than the 100 degrees in Lubbock. And... Uh, we moved up here, and now we've got uh, two kids, and uh, I, I get to go up for tenure this year, uh, or I'm hoping to. I, I got a meeting next week. It's been a fun ride. Like, I would have ever thought I'd have got out of skateboarding and going uh, causing ruckus. I literally feel fortunate enough to have, like, the coolest job in the world. I think we all feel that way. We're all biased to our position, but. It's so much fun. It's not even work. It's more like uh, just get to do things you enjoy. So kind of intentional, a lot of right place at the right time and knowing the right people and uh, just people that believed in me. Because when I went to go, hey, I'll tell you a funny story. This is somebody you work with. When I went to go meet Pritchard, he saw my G, he saw my grades. And I made a D in nutrition the first time I took it. I wasn't very hooked up. It was uh, Mike Ballou taught the class with graduate slide decks. And I was over my head. I wouldn't take the time to study. I just went to the class. And uh, I didn't do very good. And so I told Dr. Pritchard when I left, I was like, why would you have ever taken a shot on me? He's like, you're not the first person I ever had that made a D in nutrition. And the other guy was Dr. Dan Thompson. So we... If it wasn't for Dr. Thompson coming in with not-so-stellar undergrad grades, I might not have ever got a shot to go to grad school. So it's a small circle that I'm indebted in some way, too. So.
I think Robbie likes a challenge though too, right? Like if for no other reason to, to say that he did it. Yeah, in, in general, he likes uh, he likes going against the grain, and it's actually served him quite well. He's been able to do things that challenge conventional thinking and and improve the industry greatly. And so, yeah, and I still take the same chances now with students. I'm more inclined to take a. 2-8 or a 3-0, I've done this and had good luck with them better than the 4 students. So it, it's all about work ethic. That's the one thing. Grades are a function of work ethic, but part of it is, is we're looking for, I'm looking for good people that I can work with. I can tell them to go to the library and study their biochem, but I can't make them a good person. And so I've, I've had pretty good luck taking what I'd call below average grade point students and having a lot of success with them. So that's, I got I to gotta pay it back to the same people that were in the same boat as I was. Well, and you've had some really good GPA kids too, right? Like your very first one there. Yeah, Dathan was a, Dathan would have ran circles around me in undergrad, and he was an excellent grad student. I also had ones with really good GPAs that, that couldn't handle adversity. And part of science, part of life is failing me and Nathan, we failed a lot, actually. It was good. We both learned a lot. But I know he never. we never learn anything when it goes according to plan. When we really get better is when we screw something up so bad that it's not ruined. Maybe we got to redo some work. But you don't repeat the same mistakes twice. So that has been helpful. And I still, to this day, I, I tell my students, you know, I don't want to, we're not going to mess things. We're, things are going to happen, but we're going to uh, learn from them and, it's my job to make sure that the wheels don't come off the bus, but there's going to be adversity and there's going to be tough things. I remember one time, Nathan and I were working on a, doing serum urea nitrogens with the, it was the Fawcett and Scott method. It was a homebrew assay. He might have told you this. Oh, I've heard this story. <laughs> you heard the story. He brought me these these, these serendipity nitrogens, and part of the, my training with students is, is making sure they know what's a right number and what's a wrong number. And Dathan brought me these values that were totally wrong. And I think he knew it was wrong, or maybe knew those weren't realistic serendipity nitrogen levels. They were like way too low. They were like 0.5 milligrams per deciliter. But everything worked. Uh, it looked like it worked, but the values were far too low. Look, I told Dave, and he, he like, we, we spent three months going round and round. We were trying, we bought new urease, we bought new reagents, the, all the new things we needed from Sigma Aldridge or Fisher to make the new, to start anew. But the one thing that was screwed up was the Clorox bleach, the stuff we bought at Walmart. And, and someone had put water in our Clorox bleach bottle, and so we were missing a really important reagent. And it wasn't until we uh, poured some out, because it's only a small amount you use and you put it in a pipette, you put it into the reagents. And it wasn't until one day when Jason, my lab manager, probably shouldn't have done this, but he opened it and smelled it. It didn't smell like bleach. And you don't go around sniffing bleach in general. And that was the problem. So so we fixed it. But, uh, man, those were dark days. Poor Nathan, he... He might not have ever forgiven me, but I, we went round and round and round. We tried literally every component of the assay except the bleach. So now the bleach doesn't sit underneath the sink. The bleach is up in a chemical cabinet uh, that says, do not do touch. Do not touch. Yeah, exactly. 
only for this. It's not for cleaning buckets. It's for I feel like every time I have something bad that happens in the lab, it results in the production of a sign that says something like, never do this. Or if you can't be responsible for closing the freezer after you've removed something from it, please don't open the freezer. I, I can remember one time, and this only happened once, and I'll, I'm okay to share it with people, but uh, I went in on a Friday afternoon, and I, Friday morning maybe, uh, and I was going to do some uh, blood work. Well, Pritchard always made us put blood up into every aliquot. We sort it four ways. We might have one aliquot for glucose, one for nephos, one for serum, nitrogen, and one archive sample. And this was just to avoid repeated freeze-thaw cycles. Well, I grab my samples out and get a load of this. Pritchard didn't look, and, and see, it sometimes matters uh, whether you use plastic or glass when you store your sample. But we were just using cheap glass tubes, borosilicate glass. So you got to be careful. You don't drop because you can break them. Well, I grabbed these out and I put them up on top of the fridge because I was going to go finish pulling a reagent off of the stirry, the, the, the stir. Well, then something else happened. Life happened and I, I needed, they needed help out at the FEMA or something. And I left and I never came back to the lab that day. Then on Monday morning, Jason asked me if I was going to run my samples. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, the samples you had sitting on top of the refrigerator. And I was like, oh, no. I totally screwed up. But I had my backups. The deal was, as I learned then and there, that nothing ever goes out of my line of sight when I was working in the lab. And had it all worked out good, I wouldn't have that story to help my students not make the same mistake I did. And, and then when they, if they do... Well, we've got three other tubes of the same thing in the freezer for those exact problems. So it was a good, good learning thing. I've never actually told a lot of people that, but I tell my students when they're facing adversity. But like, I never told Dr. Pritchard what I did when I was a student because I, uh, I probably maybe I should have, but I had backup samples and I learned myself the hard way. It was stressful. Yeah, I think we've all we've all done things like that. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the research that you've got going on up there at SDSU. So maybe tell me a little bit about some of your thoughts about the feed efficiency and marbling. We were having some conversation before we hit record and thought that sounded pretty interesting. Yeah, this is something that I am pretty, we, we inadvertently, it, it, does, it makes perfect sense. Pritchard had told me one time, and when I asked him where it was written, he forgot was either in an intake symposium or one of the years he talked at PNC. But I had, we, we wrote a grant last year and we got it and, 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 uh, and we're hoping um, to look at differences in um, slight modifications in the intake. So feed them a little less because methane yield is a function of intake, the gross energy intake. And so we were thinking, well, what if we just fed them slightly less so that they were more efficient, all right? So instead of feeding them 100 ad lib, what if we restricted that to 95% of ad lib? And we made them more efficient, so they gained the same on slightly less feed. So we, the economic benefit is improvements in dry matter feed conversion. The environmental benefit might be a slight reduction in methane yield from that critter. And that would be good. Okay, it could be maybe become a climate smart commodity. This beef was produced and it emitted 10% less methane during its life in the feedlot. 
And I kind of, for me, most, and this is my personal opinion because I'm a feedlot nutritionist, most of the meaningful methane mitigation strategies is probably going to be in, 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 I mean, the cow eats stuff we can't eat on the prairie. So it's either her or the bison. I guess you could get rid of all the livestock and maybe you're into deer hunting and pheasant hunting. And, and so those things have meaning, meaning too, but I'm thinking cows eat things that other humans can't eat. So I'm going to look at where I think the big player might be is in the finishing phase. And that's also because that's where I make a living. So I found some, Pritchard had told me when he summarized the data 20 years ago that he noticed a slight shift in marbling distribution on some of these cattle that were being programmed or limit fed slightly uh, during the finishing phase. And so I, I said, okay. So then immediately I'm thinking, I need to get into quality, looking at quality grade changes. And so actually Carl Lowell wrote a pretty recently in Progressive Cattle in a really nice article where he talked about residual feed intake and cattle of really the same weight that ate the game the same, but one group ate 8% less feed. And it made a lot of sense because feed intake, based upon where they're at on their growth curve, is going to be used to fill up the different tissue depots first. Like first brain gets dibs, then the bones and the GI tract, then muscle and fat. And so you might have the same rate of gain, but you have different proportions of the chemical components of gain. So you might have more protein, but less fat. And the whole premise of this was, is that the animal that ate less feed was going to have at harvest, well, he, during his growth curve, during growth in the feedlot, he was going to have less fat in his live weight gain. And so the premise was the same gain from 800 to 1400 pounds, less intake, but same gain, but they have less fat content in their gain. So when they were harvested, they were, say 26% empty body fat. Well, that's about a select grade. But the animal that was ate more feed, but gained the same, might finish at 28.5% empty body fat. He was going to grade choice. And then one needs to look at the difference in cost of feed, the extra food they ate, but really the, 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 the high-valued asset they produced was going to have less marbling. And so there was going to be a, lo- a lesser premium when it was marketed and sold. So we actually inadvertently, so I knew that. Then I did a study where we were on purpose uh, in messing up the, 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 the accuracy of loading ingredients. So we either fed too much or too little of an ingredient and then used one ingredient to get back to the total last fed call. And this all started from a guy that had called me with a new, new automatic feeding system that in essence took commodities stored in a bay and added them to a mixer and it would take all the loading out of feeding a diet. And so I asked, I wanted to ask the question of what does accuracy of, of the ingredients included into the mix mean to efficiency? Well, in the first study we did, nothing happened. We were feeding, uh, we were only altering uh, the distiller's grains and the liquid supplement and we were bringing back in high moisture ear corn. Well, high moisture ear corn had the processed grain and the roughage. So when we went back to the total, we were bringing back in roughage and starch. So we really didn't screw anything up. And this was a tough bullet to swallow because we had a well-replicated study. And what was I going to do? Go and tell producers that not 
uploading things to the mixture matter? No, they would get angry at me. So we had to do another study. Well, this time we uncoupled the roughage and the concentrate. And so we were bringing in, we were bringing back in, we were changing the corn, the distiller's grains. We left the liquid supplement constant this time to not run into some deals where we might have been messing with our linensin inclusion. But we brought back in corn silage. And so we were either over or underfeeding those animals. Really what it ended up being is they ate less roughage. But at the same time, we were using ingredients with different moisture content. And so the cattle that were in the variable group, they actually got more dry matter delivered, and so they ate more. Well, they ate more and gained the same. So they ate like 10% more, or 9.5% more. Gained only a tenth of a kilo more, or two tenths of a pound more per day. But they had poor feed conversion, about 7.5%. Well, when I got the cattle harvested, I noticed there was a tendency for marbling scores to differ. So it was like 510 versus 535. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. You eat more. The calories got to go somewhere. It wasn't going to scale muscle gain, but this was late in the feeding period. So perhaps it went to lipid filling. I mean, it was the calories that they could use to fill up intermuscular adipocytes. Then I went and looked at the quality grade distribution because I think marbling is a good tool. But the economics of this is all based upon the distribution of the quality grade. Well, we ended up having about 6% fewer, uh, six unit points less select. So we went from 15% select to nine. And we went from one and a half percent to 7% prime. And so I said, oh, well, this makes sense. They eat more, the steer that's less efficient on paper was actually the steer that had a higher quality grade. And that's because the additional feed went somewhere. It didn't go to lean tissue game, but it went to marbling game perhaps. So then this was a, this is a problem. And I'm like, okay, well, they ate two, two tenths of a pound less of feed. Diet cost, you just say 15 cents a pound. So they ate 30 cents more each day in feed. Well, in a hundred day feeding period, that's $30 more in feed but they had an increase in carcass quality. And so under the situations of the current cho uh, choice prime spread, that, that came out to about a buck 75, a hundred weight premium for prime on the whole lot of cattle. So on a thousand pound carcass, that's about 1750. So in this case, being more feed efficient paid because it wasn't offset by the prime premium. So then what I got to thinking was, is as we move into this new era of say climate smart commodities and looking for ways to mitigate methane emissions, one of the big drivers on those are they reduce intake of cattle. So what does that ultimately do to quality grade? And my question is, is if we produce this product, well, we're all, it needs to be the value it gets in the marketplace for being, a, say, a climate smart commodity because you fed something that mitigates methane. And maybe it just makes them eat less, or maybe you feed them less so they emit less methane. Well, it needs to be it needs to overcome the loss in carcass value. And so I think it, it makes perfect sense. You need more fat content in your live weight gain to deposit and fill lipids in the intermuscular adipocyte. And so just this uh, single trait selection for efficiency might actually just be selecting for a livestock that has less marbling potential. Or in the feedlot, might cause less to to lower the value of this asset that we produced on our farm. So we've 
we're, we're ramping up on this research. Um, it was maybe all the information was under my nose the whole time. Richard had told me about it. Carl Old had mentioned it. But it was really cool to see it in my own lab, my own feeding study. And now we're pretty pumped up about it. So we're taking the, we're going to be the antagonist on, on this. We're going to say, okay, we can do this, but we also are doing this to carcass outcomes. So can we have both? I think we can. Uh, it's just going to take some time to work through it. So we want to produce climate-friendly beef, but also maintain the value of the, the product that we produce. I don't know how, if we're going to figure it out this round, but it makes sense. They need to eat food to, 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 to fill it. So it's pretty cool. It, it's not like rocket science, but... I always struggle with the methane story on the feedlot, right? Like there's a reason we feed grain. It's because we wanted less methane to be produced because it's a gross energy loss. <laughs> you know, like we've been doing that for decades. Oh, let's just say on a concentrate diet, yield of methane is 3% of gross energy intake. Okay. And then, so 3% of, I'm going to have to use easy numbers here. 3% of, of gross energy intake of 30 megacals. And then, so 3% of that uh, is like one, yeah, one megacal of methane emitted. And these numbers might be slightly off. Gross energy intake might be slightly higher. Um, let's just do 33% gross energy intake megacals per day. 3% of that is one megacal of methane emitted. And you want me to reduce that 10% because most of this technology only reduces the yield of methane 10%. That's the difference is one and 0.9 megacals per day. I think a little number times a big number. Yeah, I know that's always a big number. But to do that in the expense of, of, of lowering the value of uh, something that, that, that our Americans have become accustomed to eat, we're going to have to offset this with some premium when we sell them. So that's my take and I, I think it's it's great. We've got to know where we're at. We need benchmarks and to know where we're going. But really the most the best thing we can do is to make the animal that comes off the prairie probably as big as possible and get there in the most efficient way possible. But if a cow's out on a prairie, the best way to lower total the most environmentally societal and governments friendly beef production strategy is Probably to produce 2,000 pound steers with uh, 1,400 pound carcasses. But that doesn't work either. No, from the meat quality standpoint and from the size of the rib. Yeah, so there, there, obviously there's a limit, but yeah. it's yeah. fun to well, we've got kind of a short time together today. We're recording this on March 31st, 2023. So uh, Zach's got to go pick up his kid from daycare because he's got a blizzard in the Northern Plains. And here in Ames, I'm watching a wall cloud slide towards me here. So Yeah, I know all of Iowa, Illinois... Y'all are in like a tornado watch is what I heard. We are. So let's do our let's do our final three questions and then we'll we'll let you get to pick up the kiddo. Plus that I didn't do a good job with my technology, so we'll have you on again in the future. All right. Yeah. Maybe next time I'll have won't have as much hair and I'll be great. It's time for our famous three. <laughs> so final three questions. First question. What's your favorite beef resource? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, to be honest with you, Mason, pretty good book. I 
I'm not old. I'm kind of old school. My favorite of all the Masons was the 84. It's just easy to read because it, it literally is a 90-page document. About halfway through, it's got all the equations you need for predicting growth and retained energy. They haven't changed. The application of them and the way you use them have changed with the equivalent body weight system. But if you know what those that adjustment is for equivalent body weight, the 84 NRC is a... I literally teach out of it. I don't tell my students I'm teaching out of it. They all read from the 16 Mason. I pretty much read the 84 Mason for information. Uh, that's my trick. Uh, one thing I think, and I've lost time to do this as I got, I used to like be able to just sit around and read all day. And you know how it gets you. Before you know it, you're on the parking committee, grad faculty rep for two other students. I'm on that committee. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have you got more meetings than you. It takes the joy out of the investigation, like sitting down. And, so what I did in grad school is every day I'd go to JAS. TAS wasn't really out yet. Uh, livestock science was around. They have a first look. And so I still to this day, every day, I see you looking at the storm. Every day, I, I, go, <laughs> I go every morning, and the first thing I do is open up my email. I look through those. A lot of them are not important. But I go to first look on the Journal of Animal Science. And that's a pretty good way to stay up to date on what's current. I think a lot of you know, i got a pretty photographic memory. So I'll read something, and then I'll, if I'm interested in it, I'll save it into my PDF folder. And then I'll be talking to the students. I'll be like, oh, there was a paper two weeks ago that was talking about just that. And it's way easier to see three new papers come out every day than to wait for the journal with 20 new articles. And so my, my resource for staying current in the literature is to go and screen all the new papers published at first look. I do that every morning. It's like coffee for me. I go to the bathroom after you wake up. I go sit down and I go and look at all the first looks on all the journals that I like to read. So that's my strategy of, of resources. It's pretty handy. It, it's, it's fun. You get to see what's happening before it's in final print and kind of keeps you current. Absolutely. Okay, second question. What's a, a resource not, or uh, what's a book not related to beef that you're reading right now? Yeah, so I, uh, I've, I was never really a, I could not pick up a chapter book ever to save my life. To be honest, I read the Hardy Boys when I was a kid a lot, uh, mainly for accelerated reader points, because that's how they, they assessed one's ability to learn. Um, but uh, so what, normally when I'm reading things, I'm reading like uh, magazine articles or it needs to be able to be deciphered in a few minutes. Uh, I like this is um, I don't have a lot of hobby stuff. So I, I'll find myself uh, reading through the first look often and, and reading general articles. But if I had to pick a book, um, I've not read a lot of books lately. But I did read a book with my son uh, the past three weeks. We read a Life According to Humphrey. And Humphrey's a hamster who went to a first grade classroom. And that was pretty interesting because, you know, Maddox, he's, he's only in kindergarten and it's, he's learning. He's, le he's learning about plots of stories and He'll illustrate and act out. And, and so we just finished Life According to Humphrey. And that was a pretty good book. I would have never picked it up. But Humphrey was a hamster who wasn't who came to the classroom and they 
the uh, substitute teacher that was substituting before the real teacher showed up bought it to teach him the kids responsibility. And there were things where Humphrey had to spend long weekends at school and then ended up going home with kids every weekend. And he got into a lot of mischief. So that's my current reading situation. I, I mentioned I, I'm, I get onto something and, and I'll just start reading like history. So I'm really big into history type books. So that keeps, that looks like it's getting pretty gnarly there. Yeah, I was going to say it just got very, very windy here. So let's wrap up with our last question. What's a trait of someone you know that's helped make them successful? Yeah, I'm probably gonna my dad. So uh, I've got you know in grads, you, I've got three mentors that were pretty monumental in my life. So one is of course my father. That's pretty lucky. He is a he's different. Dr. Pritchard and Dr. Johnson. And literally, I tell people to this day, if they tell me to jump off a bridge, I'm like, where's the bridge? Because I, I my graduate mentors. They believed in me and they cared about me and they loved me. They never, if even if even when they were rub, running me hard, the only reason they did it was because they cared about me. So same thing with my parents. They didn't they didn't punish me as a child because they didn't love me. So one thing that, that my dad and mom both did, and it's really both of them, they were a team. So dad was gone a lot growing up with his job, but he always made it home. By Thursday night, he never missed a football game. And he told me one time, you know, dad didn't go to college. He, he was a different guy. He, he sold groceries and, uh, and was a pretty good grocery salesman. So he started out as an order buyer with Cisco. And when he retired, he was, uh, I didn't even get this wrong, but he was like a, he was a, a senior vice president of the corporation. So he traveled from Miami to, to Seattle. And my dad always told me, he's like, Zach, you know, just don't, don't chase what's popular. Always do the right thing. Don't worry about money because your happiness is more important than your bank, than money. And money's important in life. But he, he always told me, he instilled in us to work hard. And that's the one thing I've always tried to emulate from him was when I was done working somewhere, they were going to need to hire two people to replace me. And that's what my dad did. So really just working hard and keeping your, your nose clean and, and, and uh, you know, being there for your family. So that's, those are the things that dad always did that I would like to do. I'm not always that good at it. I wish I was better, but uh, yeah, he was the best dad ever. And uh, they raised six of us. Uh, and, and so was, I mean, I'm just, there's six, there's five other ones just like me, but one of them is a, police officer, one of them sells ice cream manufacturing equipment, one of them's a dental hygienist, one of them's a horse trainer, one of them's a construction man. But we all put the same energy into our crew. And that was mom and dad. It had to be. We just all got different things we do. So we're well-rounded, but we've all got the same attitude. We are always smiling. We're, we're just happy. We just try to be happy. People. So those are the those are the traits I think that are more important. Never, I get kicked in the face and I'll still be smiling like this. Awesome. Well, I think that really speaks a lot to your attitude, Zach. So it's cool to hear where that comes from. So with that, we'll thank you for being with us here today. We're definitely gonna have to do this again sometime. <laughs>